0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Dr. Simon Alton, Chief Executive of Community Action Decorum, a charity that provides a circle of support to the local community. Simon, hello.
1: Hello, Matthew.
0: Thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Now, normally we get directly into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we must start there. How has this affected your organization?
1: Well, I think like most organizations, we've had to adapt very rapidly uh, and provide different services to the people who need it. Our beneficiaries have Often, uh, we used to deliver things like door-to-store, which was a thing where we would take, pick up people who couldn't get to the shops. We would take them on a day trip to uh, Sainsbury's, and they would have a, a, a lovely time with a cup of tea and do their shopping. We couldn't do that, and what we found is we had to adapt. So we came up with something like, what we call store-to-door, where volunteers came forward and they did the shopping for elderly people that couldn't get out. And it made a huge difference to people's lives, not only reducing anxiety, but also it, by giving the same volunteer a relationship with people it, We were able to create positions where they got somebody checking in on them uh, and making sure they were well. So it's been an interesting time with all of our services, leading through those rapid changes to uh, support the needs of the community.
0: Do you feel that this new approach to doing your work is going to be maintained following the uh, resumption of normal life, or will you change gears again?
1: We will do a bit of both, actually. There are some of the services that we deliver that are really good, and we've created new, innovative ways of addressing local needs, and they will continue. And there are others where once the restrictions of COVID are lifted and once we're back to some level of normality, we'll be able to resume them in a different way, driven by the needs of of our local community.
0: Now, of course, supporting uh, the elderly and uh, those who need it is incredibly important. How do you find the resources to be able to carry out your essential mission?
1: Well, uh, that's a really good question because it's always a challenge. Um, we really have two different income streams and then they break down within that. So we, we have a business that we own that does uh, translation and interpreting services and the profits from that help us uh, deal with our unrestricted needs and they pay for the core for running the charity. The other part there is about grant income and we have different streams. Some of it is around uh, commissions from local government. Some of it is grants from grant-making bodies, and, and some of it is uh, income that's made on the basis of services delivered.
0: What could be done to improve the level of funding you receive?
1: Well, we, we would obviously benefit from longer commissions. Um the problem that we tend to get is if it's only for a couple of years, we can develop a service and we run it, and we get it running well. And then there's a need to change and develop and innovate. And that's great where services can change and develop and innovate, but some of the needs are just not gone away. They're not addressing a temporary need. We're trying to address a long-term need. And there, longer commissions would help. The other thing that um, we're struggling with many charities are and the charities we support are all saying very much the same that those core funds those unrestricted funds that came from traditional fundraising methods like delivery of services like shaking tins on the street um, they're the bit that's been hit and so we could find charities like our own where the money's there to deliver a service but not necessarily there to run the offices and have the photocopiers and all of the bits that make the business part of it run. So more recognition, I think, of the real cost recovery when we create uh, projects would be really helpful.
0: Now we are here to discuss the concept of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you?
1: For me, I think leadership is about creating, being a role model, being somebody who has some direction, who's very clear about where the charity is going to go and how the charity is going to have an impact. To get to that point, I need to be able to share that effectively. So it's about my communication with my team, working with the managers and getting as managers as involved as I can in everyday decisions more and more my aim is to get the managers the management team that we have here working as independent making their own decisions empowering them um, to, to run the bits of the service that they run and so the leadership is around being able to give that and having the confidence uh, to, to pass that on uh, and trust that it's being done uh, and the sense to follow up But you also have to be approachable enough that when it's going wrong or when there's an issue, the managers can come and they can discuss it without fear that uh, it's going to cause problems because it's through those discussions and that working together that we highlight the problem. So on one hand, that direction. On the other hand, the leader has a a bridge um, reaching out into the community. So a lot of the time I spend working with colleagues in local government Uh, and making sure that the services we deliver are beneficial, that they are helping the sectors of the community that need it, and they're not overlapping with the statutory services in any way. And I also have outreach work into other charities. I'm a big believer that our industry will benefit from more uh, cooperation and cooperative work. And so I work quite hard with partners to build up trust, to build partnerships um, and to create delivery methods that can not just be rolled out across the quorum, which is our area, but can also be rolled out across the county and beyond, because that way we can take the best experience of the sector and deliver it to people who need it. So I think leadership's that two-way bridge in my mind between having that clear direction and taking your team with you, but also Mm. reaching out and sharing that experience.
0: And how would you describe your personal leadership style?
1: Well, I I try to be very approachable and honest and open and have a collaborative leadership style. Uh, I guess, as you'd expect from what I was just saying about collaboration widely, I prefer to be in a position where the people I'm working with and I are co-producing what we're doing um, and that I'm really there having the direction uh, and be very clear about what the outcomes are going to be. Um, there are times through Covid where I've had to be far more directive um, and there are times certainly now as we're starting to get people back into the office where we need to, to change that leadership style and like all leaders I guess um, my style has to adapt to the the problem in front of it. Um, but most of the time, I'm most comfortable working with and through others, um, which is my always my aim.
0: Now, of course, leadership is a learned behavior. Where would you say you derived your leadership characteristics from? Did you have a particular role model or have you been shaped more by circumstance?
1: <laughs> well, do you know, I, I, uh, I was Cub Scout and... Uh, it it doesn't it feels a, a lot longer ago than I'm sure it was, but I was a cub scout and I went through scouting and I was given my first opportunity to lead um, as a sixer. And I'm sure as many of us can talk about uh, scouting and guiding as being that, that origin. Um, and that then starts to help my leadership start to develop. Admittedly, it was uh, perhaps quite a a simple view of leadership and a simple taking on a group and, and just helping them through something. But the same principles apply as you as you carry on. So I then moved into um, working for charities generally and have worked in charities for around 20 years now. And working in a charity, you, you work with volunteers and you lead volunteers. And so it's a very natural, um, evolved style, I think. Uh, that hopefully uh, I have supplemented through some training and tried to make sense of the the things I'm doing through understanding some of the theories. And I, I like a bit of theory, so I, it helps me to understand why doing something in the way gives me the output it does. Um, but that really supplements that experience that I don't think you can ever replace.
0: Now, unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for community action decorum?
1: Well, um, we've got lots and lots of people that we're supporting at the moment through the challenges of COVID. So our next 12 months are around making more and more people independent, giving them um, respectful lives, making sure that the things that they need are there reducing anxiety, and we're also starting to work with people who um, are struggling to gain employment to help them to use volunteering particularly as a way to improve their job chances in the future.
0: Well, I'd like to thank you, Simon, very much for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure to have you here, and of course we'll have to have you back at some point in the near future. But for now, Simon, thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Simon Alton, Chief Executive of Community Action Decorum. And now, if you haven't heard it before, Scott Challoner's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning.
3: Good morning. How are you?
2: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
3: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. Absolutely. It's it's lovely.
2: It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed and Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it, or would you prefer him to fluff his lines?
3: I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record, and Goodness me, that's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So, absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I'm not wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in in the country um, if if he can achieve that. But but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievement is about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team.
2: Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal... I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time and there's quite a bit of a joke about that but there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened, the ball nestled in the top corner, England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you?
3: Yes, I think people, um, I, I've, I I recall exactly what's amazing, I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving, at the whistle in his mouth, but waving, play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, that the game's nearly finished. I'm having a whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand, into the crowd, by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and it it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which which, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours.
2: It just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership be it in sport or in business you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
3: Absolutely, yes. It, absolutely. Yes, it, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to There's an element of of risks uh, making it's got to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risk. In in Mm -hmm. all walks of life, an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't uh, get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
2: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, to uh, Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming. But that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
3: Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for, w- for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with, with masks and so on. And, and also, into Also for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, covid and uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that. who's been around a long time, would still say he is the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's... It's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just, uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach it's who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to our who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different character strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as
1: I'm
3: so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important, and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers have, have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, like well, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from them and continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their careers
2: completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true?
3: <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you there weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, In our road in Greenways, so as was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite close together. It was a cul-de-sac, not a big long road, uh, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So it wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, weren't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a fear of play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making bows and wood gliders and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they. Um, Took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. that happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely
1: true.
2: And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
3: Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, have, I was born in Ashton line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- Probably I was the eldest of three. When I was probably about seven or eight, into this particular street uh, called Greenways, and he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third golden in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden, and when we moved on to a, we moved upmarket to a council house uh, somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot, and so I at that time. And even today, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother. Didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic, but I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He he, um, And what happened with my my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the, what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school the age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football, it's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood, um, miraculously, tried me, I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school, um, he... Uh, Tell I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
2: And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Eggbirth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
3: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, The sort of went messing about but t- t- between the two. I had uh, one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got nought and, and nought not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, Funny, I saw a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. The um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, uh, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for Mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 62-63 60, season, the three years of all the World Cup.
2: And when we think about leadership in football...
3: Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had, uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny, enough, I didn't realize, it's funny how you look at I've seen, when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and uh, she was showing a lot of videos of a bank scene. The programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on, but I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward and smother balls, sort of, not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man. The nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you every time you met. Sometimes he'd have a new joke, and uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him. Who remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was? And they're the two things that really stick out for Max for Banksy. And we were very lucky, and very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players and Banksy was up there not with the best, the best for
1: me.
3: to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them and, and um, obviously Tony Wadding saw that and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did and um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea he lost a bit of weight and uh, although he was a little bit in himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players. I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain, uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability, compare with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold, mm. without any shadow of a doubt, you know, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
2: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England?
3: Um, well, I think Ireland was just still sort of well with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of. Um, football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it was difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with home City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on a goal over, two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course. But I think, uh, as, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was. I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, uh, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and uh, while I think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was a that was good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for about I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> new kitchen.
2: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as, in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career?
3: Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some, sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when... Um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, 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 whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, Time after I finished playing or managing or playing things during my, during my football career. And I think I I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably.
2: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
3: Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has had natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses but there's certain characteristics when the successful boss is, 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 within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf because I've taken into my, my business life and even my, fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple, uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life.
2: And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
3: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes.
2: So Jeff... Thank you ever so much for joining us on the, uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further.
3: Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme.
2: Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again.
0: This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye.